from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this first weekend of June. I'm Tyne Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. A mammoth of a find. I had just bought this 40-acre chunk, and, and somebody asked the neighbor what he thought about it, and he says, well, at least he didn't find an oil well. Farm Journal digs up the details of a farmer's rare find that's a prehistoric marvel. A dramatic change in drought. This amount of consecutive days of rain, it's been years since I've probably experienced it. Why Texas farmers are dealing with some tough decisions after weather extremes. Commodity prices took a hard fall to start the week. It was macro madness to start the week. Our analysts weigh in on why. And in John's world. Predictions about AI predictions. The A's are 63, the nays are 36, the 60 vote threshold having been achieved, the bill is passed. The threat of the U.S. potentially facing its first ever default is gone. The Senate approved a bill that raises the nation's debt limit. The deal struck by President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy would reduce budget deficits by $1.5 trillion over the next 10 years. A deal on the debt ceiling is important for the entire ag industry to avoid a default of the government and possible shutdown of essential agency services. The worst thing for rural America today is, is any default whatsoever because it's going to drive up uh, the cost of capital. It's going to drive up lending rates. Um, it'll have a real negative impact, especially when you consider the fact that a large amar- uh, amount of Uh, capital that goes out to rural America has a connection to uh, government. The grain market saw a rough sell-off this week with soybean contracts hitting two to three year lows. And while that was relatively short-lived before weather talk entered the markets, talk of another interest rate hike may be to blame for the drop in prices. Commodity fund traders were worried about persisting inflation and a possible increase in interest rates at the next Fed meeting later this month. Fed fund futures are indicating another 25 basis point hike, but Ag Resource Management telling U.S. Farm Report there's no crystal ball to know exactly what interest rates will do over the next 12 to 18 months. But so far, there's been a 500 basis point rise in interest rates. And for farmers, that means prime rates jumped from three and a quarter for the last decade to eight and a quarter today. What we know is that their interest cost is going to double year over year. That can put significant pressure on an operation. When, uh, when, you know, when we look at and what a farmer needs to be looking at is what that interest cost is for their operation versus what their gross income is. And, and really, they've been able to kind of build debt and not have to worry about that. And that may come back to to hurt them a little bit at the end of the year. He points out agriculture goes through various cycles and he thinks we're potentially entering into one of those cycles now. After a string of warm, sunny days, no doubt many farmers spent a lot of time wrapping up or catching up on planting. Looking at the latest crop progress report, we're just about there for corn and North Dakota farmers feeling pressure last week made rapid progress, seeing a 32 percentage point jump in a week, with now 72% of that crop planted. As for soybeans nationwide, 83% is in the ground. That's a whopping 18% of normal. Cotton planting, that is still running behind, now at 60%. But spring wheat planting has now almost caught up. It's 85% complete. It's been a remarkable recovery and drought for areas of Texas 
and the plains. But for parts of the Midwest, it's been dry and only getting drier. But east of the Mississippi, short-term dryness is now starting to expand. USDA shows 34% of the U.S. corn crop is in drought and 28% of soybeans. USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey says with a high-pressure block in place over the Midwest and up into eastern Canada, it's keeping the moisture west of the Mississippi, a trend expected to continue for at least the next 7 to 10 days. But that atmospheric block is also fueling heavy rains in the southern plains, helping eat away at drought, and also creating prevent plant concerns. Some areas in the High Plains region from southwestern Nebraska to Texas picked up more than 10 inches of rain. A few locations, it was the wettest May or the wettest month on record. So here we go from these D3s and D4s, extreme to exceptional drought, to flash flooding and planting delays, all in a period of three to four weeks. Truly remarkable change. From drought, to suddenly too much rain. The Texas Panhandle seen flash flooding this past week. According to the National Weather Service in Amarillo, Hereford, Texas, as of Tuesday, had received eight inches of rain in the past month, but more rain fell since then, and the heavy rainfall event came last Friday morning, where nearly 2.45 inches of rain fell in just 40 minutes. With such a flat topography and in sort of a valley, that water simply had nowhere to go. The area is home to several feed yards. Some rumored estimates claim 25,000 head of cattle were lost in the flooding, but National Cattlemen's Beef Association telling me those estimates are way too high. It's one of the largest cattle feeding uh, areas in the United States, so definitely uh, widespread impacts, you know, there's probably going to be some production losses, performance losses in terms of, you know, rate of gain, things like that. Uh, none of this stuff is, is going to be long term. It's, it's mostly going to uh, work its way out here in the next few days. There shouldn't be supply chain increases. There shouldn't be significant price increases. Um, you know, who knows what else might happen in the meantime, but the, the impacts are going to be relatively short lived for the vast majority of these areas. Now, more flooding happened later in the week as more rain fell. Robinson says that feed yards around Hereford were getting creative and pumping water out and getting cattle on dry ground. One feed yard in particular used dewatering pumps from oil drilling sites, bringing those pumps in from as far as New Mexico. That's it for the news. While dry conditions continue to expand across parts of the Midwest, so is some relief on the way or could those dry conditions continue? We'll have a check of weather next. U.S. Farm Report weather is brought to you by H&S Manufacturing. Available in 16 and 18 wheel models, the HC7116 high capacity rake can handle your high tonnage forage, even corn stalks. Find out more at the H&S website. Time now for a check of weather. Meteorologist Matt Engelbrecht joining us this weekend. Matt, the drought monitor this week shows 34% of the U.S. corn crop is currently impacted by drought and 28% of soybeans. And we're hearing from a lot of viewers concerns just about the lack of soil moisture right now. That's a great point, Ty. Now, when we're talking about uh, rainfall, a part of it has to do with how much rain can actually soak down into the soil. Uh, unfortunately, what we're kind of getting into is with the above average heat across a good portion of the nation uh, this past week and going back the last almost 14 days, any rain that comes down is going to be very shallow and evaporated very quickly back into the atmosphere. So yeah, the soil moisture uh, continues to be dry across a good portion of the United States where we're not able to really soak any of that rain even if it does come down all the way into the soil because of those above average uh, temperatures. This is the updated drought monitor. They're seeing more yellow now, which is in that dry category, not enough 
officially, uh, not officially a drought, but also the moderate starting to expand as well. It's going to be more of that beige color uh, back into uh, Illinois. And then we got uh, the extreme, uh, if not exceptional drought uh, into portion, uh, portions of Oklahoma, Texas, and into uh, uh, Missouri as well. We see some of the red. So again, the yellow is going to be that dry category uh, where we can try and get some help is with more substantial rainfall, like an inch or two inches of rainfall for consecutive days rather than an isolated shower for one day. So I want to show you what's going on with the jet stream as we get through the weekend and next week. Things start to improve as a, rather than a stagnant or blocking pattern in the jet stream, which is what we had the last couple of weeks. Things are going to start to move a little bit better than they have. So this is a jet stream coming up on Sunday. Uh, circle right here is low pressure system. Now, and we talked about this last week or the week before that in between the two pressure systems, whether it's a low and a high or even a high and a high, in between the two is where you can get uh, days of scattered showers. And we're going to start to set that up uh, as early as Monday. This low is located here and the ridge, very deep ridge where we're not going to see much activity extends back up here uh, into Canada. But right in between the two is going to be kind of that zone where uh, a couple of days during next week we could see isolated showers develop between that low and this ridge of high pressure, so the trough and the ridge. That being said, we're expecting very hot temperatures or above average temperatures back up to the northwest next week based on how that jet stream is shaping up. Precipitation outlook. It's better. It's not great. Uh, wetter than normal or wetter than average uh, precipitation, possibly back out here you know, closer towards the Mississippi River, something that we haven't seen too much of uh, the last few weeks. Again, that's a precip outlook uh, from June uh, into middle of June. Temperature outlook uh, where that low pressure center was located uh, with the jet stream. That's off on the East Coast. Thanks, Matt. Well, weather definitely catching the attention of the markets late in the week. We'll talk about it with Ben Brown and Dan Bossy. They join us for our marketing roundtables next. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Dan Bossy, as well as Ben Brown joining us this weekend. Dan, I mean, you look at earlier in the week, it was an absolute bloodbath in the grains. We saw some contract lows, uh, you know, some, some, some frustrated farmers out there. But then we flipped a switch. So what was the mood earlier in the week? And then what's the driving force now? Well, it was macro madness to start the week. Uh, we saw Chinese PMI come in under 50. Concerns about the Chinese economy with widespread. We were talking about a U.S. recession, not getting a debt bill through. And all of these things kind of collided. And we just don't have any resting orders in the Chicago market, either above or below. And because of that, when the selling started, it just kind of became a bulldozer trade, which took us to sharply lower levels. Yeah, and we had some of that holiday trade, but now as we look at the drought monitor that came out Thursday, Ben, I mean, we've known some areas are dry in the Midwest, some of the Corn Belt, but now USDA is saying 34% of the corn uh, is, is facing drought, 28% of the soybeans, and we are seeing that drought creep east. Absolutely. I, I, you look at this week's drought monitor and it just exploded uh, across a, a big swath of, of the growing region. And I anticipate that it's going to continue to grow. If you look at the, the forecast for weather over the next couple of weeks or really the whole month of June, uh, that's going to continue to grow. When we look at previous years and we think back to, to where this is, you know, anything that's similar in nature, you know, we were well ahead of, of this in 2012 when we had that big drought, but we're kind of tracking the 2013 and even somewhat the 2014 growing seasons uh, when we look at drought and it's growing across the, the region. So certainly, you know, the possibility of some some strong yields are still there, but we're starting out kind of in a deficit 
I think I can safely say that everybody across the country would certainly take a drink, maybe outside of like the Southern Plains, um, but everybody would take a drink of water right now to kind of help relieve some of that, that pressure. And that's helping to ignite this rally that we're seeing in the grain markets. Well, speaking of the Southern Plains, talk about one extreme to the other. Flash flood warnings, farmers pushed out of the field. I mean, more than, than 10 inches of rain in a lot of those areas. And what I'm hearing is it's coming at the expense of cotton acres. So is the story over when it comes down to not only cotton, but then how we see that switch over to other crops and even silage? Well, we, we need to not only get cotton and sorghum in the ground. Farmers were hoping to get more acres because of the beneficial rain but now we, of course, are, are, are concerned about tearing up of fields. Too much rain. The rain won't stop. It's a stuck pattern. And then we get into the HRW or hard red winter wheat harvest. And we're starting to hear about quality concern. The harvest is now pushed up into southern Oklahoma. Uh, uh, protein levels and falling numbers are coming down. Uh, I'm real concerned that if this rain doesn't stop in the next two weeks, that we're going to have some real issues with the red winter, hard red winter wheat harvest and just getting crops in the ground. It's getting beyond the time frame when, of course, the plains needs to get seed, whether it be cotton or sorghum or another crop in the ground. It's just getting too late. Yeah, so wheat harvest getting ready to get underway. A lot of those areas now finally seeing that rain a little too late for the wheat. But on the demand side of that, this Russia-Ukraine situation and the grain initiative, it seems like now we're hearing that it's halted again. Ben, I mean, this storyline just continues to, to change. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a drama saga uh, for a number of fronts. We can look at you know COVID uh, and before that, even the 2019 prevent plant kind of situation that we had broad uh, parts across the, the Midwest as kind of indication of how this has played out so far. You know, there was lots of media attention around this in the early stages of, of the Ukraine-Russia conflict. And as we've moved further, you know, it's taken more headlines and it's taken more news to kind of really make the markets jump. Um, you know, we've we've seen reactions still. That's that's still in place, but the the reactions are becoming smaller as we're becoming kind of numb to this this news. And and it's a result of just this on again, off again nature. Um, on one day, off again the other day. So uh, that's that's where we're at right now. All right. Well, Ben and Dan, we have a lot more to talk about, especially on the demand side. And we're going to get back to crops and what traders will be watching in these coming weeks. We'll do that coming up later on U.S. Farm Report. Experts are starting to warn that artificial intelligence could mean the extinction of humanity. That prediction may seem extreme, but what does artificial intelligence really mean for agriculture? John Phipps continues to look at that topic this weekend in John's World. It is a rare page of news these days that doesn't have an article about AI, artificial intelligence. We are consumed with curiosity about this technology and apparently harboring more than a few fears. The prediction industry is in full swing, so much so that I begin to wonder if these forecasts are well thought out efforts to imagine what the consequences of AI could be, or just a strategy of predicting everything imaginable in the hopes of one coming true to crow about in the decades ahead. The current wave reminds me of the early predictions about the internet, which tended to underestimate its impact on our lives. Rather than joining that crowd, I'm going to make some predictions about the predictions themselves. First, 
Despite the hundreds of forecasts, it will be the unforeseen uses of AI that will have the greatest impact. The rush to deploy AI will lead to coincidental, curious ideas by thousands of other minds, a few of which could be truly significant. Forecasts will underrate the power of AI to make human behavior change as a group and individually. Cell phones have altered our social behavior in ways nobody saw coming, for example. The myriad estimates of jobs and industries that will be adversely affected or fundamentally changed will bleed over into those seemingly safe industries and jobs. While AI upends many types of work and disappears entire careers, there could be a rush for, by workers to those that seem relatively untouched. Farming appears to be one, and while I think AI will have limited impact on the actual work of farmers and how many there will be, more sons and daughters will factor in job security to farm careers. The follow-on impact will be farm families revising business plan to expand acres almost regardless to the higher cost and risk. In short, AI could bring the kids home and support or raise land prices even more than financial factors might indicate vaguely reasonable. Finally, and most importantly, especially compared to the internet, the most lucrative and powerful AI applications will remain unknown as long as possible as the owners extract profits and avoid public consternation. Some predictions about the business and social impact of AI will come close, but those forecasts will be lost in a sea of wild guesses, and almost all will overlook AI's biggest cultural impacts. Thanks, John. Up next, Pretty in Pink, a tractor with a purpose. Machinery Pete joins us for Tractor Tales next. Tractor Tales on U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Farmall, 100 years of milestones, community, and memories. Since 1923, it's been the one for all. Celebrate with Case IH at farmall100.com. Welcome back to Tractor Tales, folks. This week, we have a special story for you about a classic Farmall H built in the 1940s. And of course, the H's got the job done on the farm for decades. Now this particular age, uh, these days is a little different. It's raising awareness and a few eyebrows along the way. Well, we've got a 1940 Farmall H that my daughter restored for her senior project for FFA. And she decided to do a breast cancer tractor in awareness of breast cancer in honor of her sister and her great grandmother. She came up with it. A friend of ours has done a purple one for pancreatic cancer, a gold one for children's, and a red one for heart. And it kind of inspired her, and she decided she wanted to do a pink one. It pretty much got retired, and it mainly just goes to tractor shows and parades and relay for lifes. Oh, we pull the hay wagons with it and rake hay and things like that with it. We had to do some mechanical, complete tune-up on it, rebuilt the carburetor on it. Our neighbor, he does a lot of the carburetor work for us, so she went over there with him and she watched him do it so she could get educated on that. There was a lot of sanding and cleaning up and we tried to put it back to as much as original as possible, so we went and found fenders, belt pulley, things like that. We get questions all the time about it and why it was done and some people think it's just a pink tractor until they get to looking at it and 
realize that we did it for breast cancer awareness. It's an eye catcher. It gets a lot of attention. It stays at my house in the garage out there because I've got more room than she does. But when my daughter isn't at work and stuff, she climbs right up on it and goes. All right, now that's my kind of tractor. Well, when we come back, a mammoth of a find in a farmer's field in Michigan. That's next as Farm Journal digs up the details of a massive find that's a prehistoric marvel. It's our Farm Journal report next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Well, ask any farmer, and the stories of what they find in their fields can be quite unique. Junk that people dump off, trash, and even some off-the-wall things. But for two Michigan farmers, they uncovered a mammoth of a find. And Farm Journal's Chris Bennett helped dig up the details, but it's something we wanted to see for ourselves. And as Clinton Griffiths reports, it's a sensational discovery beneath one soybean field. All our tiles come together basically in our... Then they go out, keep head on out going down, down the there. ditch, yeah. basically. In 2015, a week before harvest, neighbors Trent Satherwaite and Jim Brisley began installing a field tile lift station on this newly acquired 40 acres in Chelsea, Michigan. We actually had a backhoe and a mini, back, mini excavator, so we're one of us on each side. We're trying to be on each side so that we could not have as big a hole. Until they hit something hard and pulled up what looked like a fence post. And I asked Jim, did you bury any fence here? And he said, no. <laughs> what was your first thought when you hit something? <laughs> I just wanted to get the tiling done. <laughs> <laughs> What'd we get ourselves into? What they got into was a massive pile of bones. Another foot, we could have missed it completely. The discovery made clear as next a pelvis bone with its honeycomb texture emerged from the hole. We actually went and read the laws first <laughs> to see what kind of trouble we were in <laughs> or we could get ourselves into. And well, who, who owned it? Yeah, you know, basically. I mean, who's, yeah. Who has the rights and, and it come down to it's private land. It belongs to the landowner and he calls the shots. Next. They made a phone call. We called down to the university and talked with them. And they said, well, the world expert is here at U of M. University of Michigan's Dr. Daniel Fisher. It's actually not as unusual as you might think. The global mammoth expert picked up the phone. Uh, tell me more. And we talked a bit, but it pretty soon became clear that what was really needed is to see them in person. With harvest looming, our fear was down the road they found the mastodon about 20 years ago, and they were like six months digging that one up. By the next day, an entire team was assembled and ready to excavate the prehistoric mammoth from its 15,000-year slumber. I think they were impressed by how exciting it was. It was like a, a circus that day because there was people coming down here and looking, and it, it wasn't a fast process. Dan was handing them out of the hole telling them what number rib it was and everything else. He knew exactly what that animal was. <laughs> the final find, a massive hybrid mammoth skull with both nine-foot tusks still attached. We lifted it up and had a, a flatbed truck pulled up 
and, um, and we're able to set everything gently down onto foam pads. The discovery is significant, as evidence suggests the animal was scavenged and purposely sunk to the bottom of a pond by humans. At the time we did this excavation, nobody yet knew that humans were in this part of Michigan 15 and a half thousand years ago. It changed the record books. And also, Dan had told us it proves that there was a land bridge at one time. For farmers focused on one season at a time. It kind of lets you see that we're just a little dot on this map as far as oh, yeah. time span of eight, you know, 18,000 years. Yep. <laughs> Our lifespan's a dot on this. And it's why they're making the most of the experience, even renaming the operation. There's been a lot of spinoffs. There was a coffee shop that had a mammoth mocha. <laughs> just... From a newly purchased property. I had just bought this 40-acre chunk, and, and somebody asked the neighbor what he thought about it, and he says, well, at least you didn't find an oil well. To the discovery of a lifetime. It's a harvest they'll never forget. I think when everybody was a little kid, they always wanted to find an arrowhead or a dinosaur <laughs> bone or something, you know. We're just bigger kids with bigger toys is all. <laughs> Can you imagine? Wow. Thanks so much, Quentin. And as I mentioned, Chris Bennett helped cover that story and dig up some of those details. You can read his complete article on agweb.com. Just follow the QR code that's on your screen. Well, there's a demand problem in grains, but with higher prices, could it also spill over into proteins? Our marketing roundtables are next. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Before we get into the demand side, Dan, we talked about you know, looking at, at, at weather and how that started to really fuel the market on Thursday as we saw an updated look at the drought monitor. But over the next few weeks, will it be future forecasts? You know, what is the trade going to be watching? Yeah, they're going to be trading uh, the 11 to 15 day. It's a very volatile forecast, if you will, but that's what they're looking at. Will the weather pattern change and does rain come in time to save the crop? And that's really key. But, you know, traders are also looking abroad. We've got dryness across northern Europe, the Urals and new lands, the spring wheat areas of Russia. I've got an Indian monsoon that's sputtering and not doing very well. And then the Australian Bureau of Meteorology came out this morning and gave them a very high probability, 80% of drought forthcoming because of El Nino. So it's not only U.S., there's a lot of hot spots, if you can say that, that we all need to be watching in terms of world crop production. Well, not only on the supply side, but also the demand side. And you look at demand today, specifically when you look at corn and soybeans here, you know, we've been talking about we have a demand problem. Ben, do you think that that is the case? <clears throat> yeah, well, so this has been what's driving the market for the last month and a half, especially on the corn side. Uh, when we look at export potential, you know, we've got this new competition. And it's not new, but it's certainly I think now the rest of the, the world is kind of waking up or, you know, non non-traders are waking up to this notion that Brazil is becoming a major competitor and has been a major competitor in soybeans, but is now becoming a competitor in corn as well on the global market. And that's going to change our seasonalities as we look forward over the next years, decades plus. And so that competition plus China creating some, some new trade agreements with countries like Brazil and Argentina now, uh, that's that's continuing to play into this diversification away from U.S. products, and that's that's lowering our demand for export potential. If we look at the ethanol market, you know, right now we're trading anywhere between 40 to 50 million bushels below where we need to be to hit USDA's current targets, or at least that's my calculation. Um, can we catch up over this summer month? Yeah, we could. It's going to take a lot more driving, and I think some of the macroeconomic concerns that are kind of 
you know, starting to trickle out through the economy or causing people to maybe backstep some some planned vacations and other things uh, that would increase driving. So we do have a demand side. I think it's more pronounced on the corn side than the soybean side, or at least the oil seed market. Um, but yes, demand continues to be a concern. And that's what's drove our market lower the last couple of months. Dan, even those mainstays of demand, I mean, you look at Mexico, and you know they're going now, starting to get some source some of their their theirs from Brazil. We have the ongoing uh, GMO corn issue now that we're hearing that that's ramping up too. I mean, you, are you concerned about Mexico? No, I am. I I think Mexico has even bought a cargo or two of Russian wheat because the prices got cheap enough to allow the imports. So we are seeing world trade or world buyers go to where the cheapest uh, de denomination is of, of a grain, which is Russian wheat and Brazilian corn. Those are the key ingredients. But I would also remind everybody that Argentinian soy meal is now at a record level in terms of tightness relative to the U.S. Gulf. We're going to see a very good soy meal market for export coming up. So I'm not as bearish, if you will, on the soy complex to Ben's point. But I do believe we still have this issue with Brazilian corn and Russian wheat going forward. Well, the demand problems in grains. Are we seeing any demand problems when it comes to protein? You look at, at, at how high we have these cattle prices right now. Are we seeing that impact demand on that front? Um, so I, I, do, I do think that we've seen some robust demand in, in the protein sector. If, if there's one you know, real hot spot, I think, for livestock producers, it's that as prices have increased at the grocery store, uh, whatever the reason might be tight cattle or market ready cattle supplies or you know increases in labor transportation packaging whatever the reason for the high prices consumers continue to to buy them and have been buying we're seeing a little bit of softness now especially in some of the higher protein cuts um but that's that's been very robust even at these higher price levels um, so that's the beef side. On the cattle side, you know, we're going to continue to see, you know, herd liquidation. The drought that we've been talking about on the grain side is going to continue to push market-ready cattle into the market. Um, that's going to create a bigger hole as we look down the road and, and send these prices even a little bit higher. So, you know, there's there's upward potential on the cattle side. There's there's also downside risk. I'm an economist, a university economist, so I, I always have to talk about the downside risk too. But certainly some upside potential. And I think if you're a producer of both beef and pork, you're sitting there saying, Hey, our demand, at least domestic and even international demand, has has remained rather strong. Chinese demand could be a concern here in the next couple of weeks, but domestic demand seems to be hanging in there. Well, we're going to take a deep dive into pork demand as World Pork Expo next week, so we'll save that for then. But Dan and Ben, thank you so much for joining us this weekend. We appreciate it. Let's take a quick break, and then we're off to the land of Oz. That's American countryside next. All right, you'll have to click your heels together three times and say there's no place like home for our next story to appear. Well, one of the most famous lines from The Wizard of Oz is still known today as the movie and story captivates an audience of all ages. But what's the story behind the tale? We're traveling the countryside this weekend with Andrew McRae. In 1900, Frank Baum published a book that would go on to become the most watched movie in history. People are still retracing the steps of those characters. As they walk up the steps with Dorothy, at Annie's house. By all accounts, Frank Baum was not your ordinary father for his day. He was a odd father for the 1800s. Uh, I think he was an odd person in general, but in specifically, he was the one that was really engaged with the children at home. He sat down and told them bedtime stories every night. As Caitlin Stubeman explains, Frank's storytelling not only captivated his children, but someone else in the family. 
these bedtime stories just were so wonderful that his mother-in-law told him he was a fool if he didn't, you know, write it down. And that book, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, was quite a hit. So much so that Frank Baum wrote 15 books by the time of his death in 1919. It's part of the story told here at the Oz Museum in Wamego, Kansas. But perhaps Baum's creativity would have remained just a series of books well known a century ago, if not for a movie that hit the screens 20 years later. Gone with the Wind was actually competing with it at the exact same time. Uh, and The Wizard of Oz itself went ex way over budget, uh, about a million dollars over budget. A huge sum in that day, but the characters from the book, the Tin Man, Scarecrow, Lion, and of course Dorothy and the Wicked Witch, had now come to life on the big screen. But what truly began to help the story build fame was something that began in 1956. So it wasn't until the movie came on television one time a year that it truly gained momentum again. It would be decades before movies could be rented and watched at home. The fact that The Wizard of Oz was on television around major holidays every year, for many years, made it something generations grew up with and something people of all ages enjoy connecting with yet today. We have 2,000 pieces on display. Uh, but it is out of 20, 30,000 pieces plus in the collection. Some may ask, though, why is Wamigo the place to tell the story of Dorothy and her cast of characters? Nowhere in the book or the movie did they say what town Dorothy was from, but we are in Kansas, and our area definitely fits the vibe. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. And the movie, the characters, the story live on today something people from across the nation and around the world come to experience in this small town. Traveling the countryside in Wamego, Kansas, I'm Andrew McRae. Thanks, Andrew. And hear more of Andrew's travels, you can visit AmericanCountryside.com or check out the Farm Journal YouTube page. We need to take a quick break, then John rejoins us for customer support this week. Important news about the shape of Norway. Another look at Norway. John Phipps has a correction and some context in customer support this week. A couple of weeks ago, I committed an epic blunder that was gently corrected by several viewers. Here it is now. When I was talking about Norway and their rapid adoption of BEVs, I used this illustration of the comparative sizes of Norway and California. Only this doesn't show Norway, of course. It shows Japan. How I made this blunder mystifies me, since Norway is one of the most recognizable countries, along with Italy. I apologize. On the bright side, we now know that Norway, Sweden, California, and Japan are all about the same geographic size. One viewer, Peter Bacco, in Painted Post New York, mentioned factors why Norway is unique and may not be helpful as a forecast for the U.S. His letter was too detailed to be excerpted easily, but I, here are some of the, those differences that he mentioned. First, Norway has only 5.5 million citizens, with 84% in urban areas. But when I looked it up, I discovered the share of Americans in metropolitan areas is 86%. Norway generates over 90% of its electricity from relatively inexpensive hydropower, and it will take more time to see if electricity consumption jumps, however. Norway is one of the world's wealthiest countries due to North Sea oil. Now, their officials are aware of the irony of this and invest that wealth accordingly. Surprisingly, though, taxes make their gasoline the most expensive in the world. 
I agree with his point that Norway is adopting BEVs faster because of these and other reasons that don't work out as well in the U.S. I was just trying to put Norway on the radar for anyone curious about electrification because we will get some hard data from Norway. For example, we should learn something about the cold weather battery argument. Norway isn't exactly tropical. Regardless of the generation source, we may discover patterns of when and how users choose to charge and how to solve the charging access problem in high density areas. Five or so years from now, we'll have some much more useful data on battery life and cost of ownership. Finally, the Norwegians are not foolish people. If BEVs are not worth the trade-off, there will be commercial and political backlash. The rest of the world can derive whatever lessons they think applicable for their country. It reminds me of watching the first farmers use rotary combines. Yeah, I'm that old. We also need to keep in mind that BEV adoption is occurring fastest in the largest car markets, and the U.S. is not the center of the auto universe anymore. I think an even more applicable example to watch will be China. Thanks, John. And remember, if you have some questions or comments for John, you can keep those coming. Just email him at mailbag at usfarmreport.com. Up next, from one extreme to the other, a sudden switch means too much rain is forcing some tough decisions for Texas farmers. We have the details as we head in from the farm next. Too much of a good thing. That's exactly what some Texas farmers are seeing right now. After multiple years of devastating drought, the rains just won't quit. And that means Texas farmers are now battling a different extreme. Wesley Spurlock is experiencing a year of firsts. This amount of consecutive days of rain is not, it's been years since I've probably experienced it. This is what the area looked like only two months ago. Severe drought with concerns about even growing a crop this year. From September to the end of April, we got less than a half an inch of moisture during that time frame. Since 26, 27, 28th of April to today, we're at 14 to 20 inches of rain. In his area of the northern Texas Panhandle, the drought monitor has went from looking like this in late February to now abnormally dry and not even in drought. And that sudden switch means most of his acres aren't even planted yet. We still have about 80% of our acres. We had about 2,500 to 3,000 acres of cotton we aimed on planting. And that cotton, the final planting date was is May 31st. USDA's crop progress report showed only half of the cotton crop in Texas had been planted as of Monday. That's why Spurlock and other area farmers are now forced to look at the possibility of prevent plant. On our main farm, it's never been an option. I mean, we've never had a problem getting there. We've known we can always, we can always plant. We can always get to that point. He says prevent plant doesn't pencil there. So they're looking at trying to plant more corn or sorghum for silage this year. But according to USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey, more rain is still on the way. You know, the signal of a wetter southern Great Plains is consistent with El Nino, but this is not due to El Nino. Rippey says El Nino hasn't officially formed yet, even though the signs are screaming that it's still on the way for a mid to late summer arrival. We haven't seen that teleconnection, that connection between the warm ocean 
in the Eastern Pacific and the atmosphere across North America yet. And that's the hallmark of El Nino. We expect that to develop later this year. And he says that could mean additional wet weather for the southern tier of states, including the southern plains. As for Spurlock, he's not giving up yet. We've taken every planter that we had in the barn out. We've rebuilt them. We've fixed all the precision on them. And so we've got about 260 foot of planter sitting on tractors at the moment. It's just crazy how quickly those things changed. Well, next weekend, we are on the road. We are going to visit the World Pork Expo next week. And if you are visiting World Pork Expo, we have a live taping of the show on Wednesday at 1130 a.m. We're going to join the National Pork Board in their tent. We have Aaron Bohr, Dermot Hayes, as well as Steve Meyer. They're our analysts next weekend. Again, we have a live taping of U.S. Farm Report during World Pork Expo next week. Well, that's all the time we have for this weekend. Thank you for watching. Be sure to tune in next weekend as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.